Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Leslie Miller Nicholson. Leslie is the director of MIT Technology Licensing Office, also known as TLO, a position she has held since July 2016. Leslie leads a team of professional staff managing the intellectual assets and technology transfer process for MIT's inventions. Prior to arriving at MIT, Leslie served for 10 years as director of the Office of Technology Management at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Leslie is a past president of both the Board of Governors of Certified Licensing Professionals and Board of Directors of the Licensing Executive Society. A native of Scotland, she has a B.E.D., MED and MBA, and is a certified licensing professional. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Leslie. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much again for taking part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. And Leslie, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Cambridge and at MIT? Certainly. It's a little bit of a circuitous route, and I might not tell you the whole story because that would take up an entire hour. (laughs) But um, I'm originally from Scotland. Um, I came across the United States uh, in uh, 2000 now and actually came across for love. Um, I came across uh, as a mechanism to uh, be with my partner, now wife. And uh, the only way I really could do it at the time was to enroll in in, uh, college back in university. And so I enrolled in the MBA program, was lucky enough to get that. There's a whole backstory to that. We'll get into it. And as part of my MBA program, because I was uh, an international student, I couldn't work off campus. Uh, You know, all of the issues to do with um, visas and the like. And I was lucky enough to be asked to participate in uh, an internship at the then rather small tech transfer office, which was rebuilding, uh, known as the OTM. I told you it was going to be a long story. Um, uh, From there, I I worked a year as an intern, uh, finished off my MBA, had not thought that I was going to get back into it, uh, but ultimately was wanting to find a way to stay in the United States. And I was lucky enough that they were recruiting, and I applied for what's called a tech manager job, a licensing job. I got that job and I was there for about four or five years before I was asked to uh, um, apply for the the director's position, which I did. And I effectively became the director for 10 years after that. And in 2016, I make it sound very easy. It was a very interesting time. <laughs> it must um, have been. Um, I uh, was approached uh, about my interest in the position at MIT, which I really hadn't given much thought to. Um, thinking that boots were too big to fill and the like. Um, but I was, I would say, lucky. My life has been filled with stars aligning, and the stars aligned in this case too. 
And uh, in 2016, myself, my wife and our daughter moved to uh, Cambridge, where I've been uh, since uh, since that time. Yeah, and that's quite a move because you went from the University of Illinois um, uh, to the East Coast. So how did you find uh, living on the East Coast compared to the Midwest? I have to say it was like coming home. Uh, the, the Northeast United States reminds me so much of uh, Southwest England, actually, where I spent 12 years of my life, and of Scotland. There's so many things, even the names of towns, for goodness sakes, are, are, are the same. I, I keep thinking back to, to, to England and the like. Uh, because many of the, even the town Sudbury here, there's one of those in England too. Um, so yeah, it, it was. And I should say, just for those who are like, how do you get into tech transfer? I trained as a physical education teacher, but that's an entirely different podcast. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you about that because I saw that in your background and I was like, wow, talk about uh, taking a very different career route from physical education to tech transfer. And I mean, I have to say, I, I've talked to people who've been English majors, who've been elementary education majors and then people with PhDs. So it's amazing the breadth and the depth of people who get into tech transfer. That's absolutely right. And to me, it's like, uh, you know, don't close doors before uh, you try something out, because I never would have imagined in the entirety of my life uh, that I'd end up in this position, which I'm privileged to hold. Well, um, I know people are familiar with MIT, but for those of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the Technology Licensing Office, the TLO, um, could you tell us a little bit more about it? Certainly. We are a staff of uh, just over 50 people. Uh, we span the gamut of uh, licensing staff, uh, a small marketing team, IP, finance, um, compliance, all of the things that you need to basically um, take in inventions, review them, protect them, and try and get them into the marketplace. Uh, we are a, a, a large-ish office, but the volume of our work is immense. I think it might be the largest amount of uh, inventions across the U.S. received by one uni single university. We receive between 700 and 800 inventions in any given year. We have over 11,000 issued or pending U.S. and foreign patents. We are we see about well we do about 100 plus uh, licenses a year and at the moment um, license into about 20 to 30 startup companies and as everyone knows we have a vibrant um, ecosystem uh, within both our community and around the, the northeast and the Boston area which we are very lucky to have and which is really hard to replicate without kind of 60 70 years of history behind you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a that's a tremendous volume. And I could see why your office is uh, the size it is. And and I'm assuming that you have other innovation programs and initiatives as well. And um, given the volume you're doing on the patent and licensing side, I, I have a feeling that there's probably a large volume of those as well. Yeah, there's over 85 and probably, you know, since yesterday, there's probably 86 innovation programs. And the interesting thing about them is that we don't run them. The TLO, the licensing office, is not responsible for them. There is uh, a number of different programs, all pretty much independent. There is an umbrella organization called the MIT Innovation Initiative, which hosts and house, houses a number of different programs, but um, not all 85. So as examples... Martin Trust Center for Entrepreneurship um, is student-based, um, has a Delta V Accelerator program, which is a tremendous event every year, uh, sees a lot of small companies starting, often student-owned IP. Um, we have a Sandbox program, which uses 
philanthropic funding to seed small grants to, again, mostly student uh, IP, but some MIT-owned IP opportunities. And then uh, the Dishpandi Centre, which, again, is philanthropically funded and does proof-of-concept grants within MIT for MIT-owned IP that is one of your kind of typical proof-of-concept programmes. And then the MIT Innovation uh, Initiative, which has actually got a new a new house, shall we say, the Innovation um, Center uh, was just created part of a $1.5 billion capital bill that's gone on over the pandemic, which has completely transformed the way in which Kendall Square looks now. So I wanted to ask you, Leslie, I, looking at your website, I saw something called the Shirley Transformation Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So underpinning any tech transfer office is a database of some sort, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet or a honking great access database or something that has uh, um, come off the shelf. Uh, Our program currently is called Forrester. It was built in the 1990s. Um, It is creaking at the seams. And when I came in uh, now nearly six years ago, uh, I was like, okay, when's this getting replaced? And uh, pretty much uh, got into into gear to get the funding to begin the process to assess what it was that we needed. Shirley Transformation is effectively that project. We are working with um, Deloitte um, to build a new database. Um, the base is uh, Salesforce, but we are making many, I'll say, unique pieces to it to make sure that it serves all of our needs. And I'll say one of the interesting things is that the complexity of the work at MIT is because we are not and do not have a hospital, a medical center. We have many, many faculty who have joint uh, appointments with the surrounding uh, medical community, which means it is uh, not rare, but, you know, when we get invention disclosures in, it's, it would be wonderful if it was, you know, one or two inventors and uh, all, all, all assigning to MIT, but it's not. It can be five or six inventors assigning to multiple entities around us. And that takes a lot of work. Uh, and tracking that and making sure that we have all of the assignments, et cetera, et cetera, probably going into too much detail, but means that we have a we need a database that can serve all of our needs across the breadth of the technologies and across the life of a patent or the software or the copyright or whatever it is that we have. So we have uh, unusual complexity, shall we say, as well as large volume, which is why we chose to go down this route. It's a multi-year project. It is uh, not cheap. I won't say the amount. Uh, and we're still working on it. Uh, but we have a tremendous team. I have to give a shout out to Dan Dordani, who's doing great things, having step, stepped away from his licensing position to be our, our functional lead uh, to our uh, two project managers for, from our uh, MIT IST group and to the all the entirety of the TLO as well as the Deloitte team who are working with us on this. Yeah, that's a very unusual situation. I don't think I've run into too many tech transfer offices where they have that level of complexity in terms of, you know, having that many disclosures and inventions that are jointly owned amongst a variety of different institutions. So, um, yeah, I could see how that gets uh, uh, very complicated fast. So I wanted to ask you, Leslie, I know you're the director of uh, Catalyst in the newly formed MIT Office of Strategic Alliances and Technology Transfer, uh, also known as OSATT. Uh, I was curious if you could tell us a little bit more about OSATT and what it is exactly and perhaps how it's structured. Yeah, and I'll, I'll keep it simple for you. So we we describe it as OSAT. OSAT. Just, uh, 
which I think is, uh, you know, Icelandic for something terrible. So we won't go <laughs> into that. Um, I might not be Icelandic, but I know I looked it up and I'm like, oh, we might not want to call ourselves that. But there you have it. So um, imagine in your mind uh, uh, a set of pillars, shall we say, uh, five pillars, um, t- t- two on the outside. One is the licensing office and the other is the uh, MIT Office of Corporate Relations We've effectively built above those five pillars a new organization called OSAT um, in order to accommodate what we were not doing as well as we could have been doing, which is uh, corporate engagement. And those three middle pillars now consist of um, a catalyst team, a strategic uh, alliance team, and um, an alliance manager team, or a strategic transactions team rather than an alliance manager team. And the intent is that we are now providing a very faculty-centric approach to corporate engagement. Why would we do that? Well, most universities, grants and contracts or office-sponsored programs often do um, corporate engagement too, but they're built on a model of federal funding. And that means they're built on the kind of speed and timing and type of those engagements. That is very different from what the corporate world expects. And so we have kind of created this new set of teams uh, in order to accommodate a faculty-centric, corporate-centric approach to getting the agreements right. So rather than just pulling a plain vanilla industry-sponsored research agreement off the shelf, throwing it at a sponsor and saying, have a look at that, getting it redlined back and having multiple arguments about what was intended or not or whatever, we're actually starting at the right place in the conversation, which is, what do you faculty member want to do? What do you want to get out of this? What do you corporate sponsor want to do? What do you want to get out of it? Do you need confidentiality terms? Do you need some visiting scientists? Do you need material transfer? And by teasing that out with the catalyst at the front end of the discussion, they can actually go to the transactions team and say, the agreement needs to look like this, either plain vanilla or not, something special or not. It's short term. It's $500,000. It's $10,000 and try to get to the core before we've actually swapped a, 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 an agreement. And the alliance managers, so the transactions team, basically are the lawyers doing the, the drafting, pretty much now um, not, not, um, not entirely bespoke every time, but very much tailored to the needs of both the faculty member and the sponsor. And then the alliance manager team, this is where when we have large agreements to stand up for initiatives, whatever, that we have either some interim guidance to get them going, some best practices that can go, or a a liaison to our teams uh, for ongoing large uh, engagements, consortia, other initiatives that MIT is uh, pretty good at doing pretty frequently. Well, I also wanted to ask you about something called 10U that I know you were instrumental in starting. And um, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with 10U, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what it is and what it does. Certainly. And I honestly can take no credit for, for starting this. <laughs> I, you know, I have to bend to my, my colleagues uh, and really those first in the UK um, and uh, in Europe, uh, given the fact that UK is no longer Europe. Exactly. Um, but uh, so 10U is a, is a group of uh, universities, uh, Leuven in Europe and uh, others, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to look at uh, University of Cambridge, Edinburgh, um, Imperial College, Manchester, Oxford, and then UCL, University College London, as well as MIT, Stanford, and uh, Columbia. 
And it started with a group called 6U, which still exists and is the UK kind of centric. If I'd say, you know, if people know the different groups, a Big Ten group, an Ivy Tech group, whatever, Pacific group, um, it's very similar to that. But we were constantly getting asked about, well, could you come and talk to us about how you do it in the US? Because the UK and the European government want to know, why do you get more of this or less of that? And why are we getting challenged on? And we thought, let's make this easier for ourselves. So we created this group together and we're lucky enough to get funding from Research England. So it is a funded organisation. Uh, we have tremendous help uh, in the form of uh, Anna and I, uh, Aguilera, and she is the policy advisor and has driven much of, um, I'll say, the conversations, but also the sorts of events that uh, have put on. And it, it is uh, an opportunity to, to share best practices. There are a couple of things that we've done together. There's some events that we've done together called um, 10U Presents, I think, um, as well as uh, some white papers on metrics, on equity. And then most recently, um, really driven by Anna and I, uh, 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 what we're calling a, a fellows and exchange program, which in any other time of, of life might be a, a physical exchange, but at the moment is effectively a, a digital staff exchange and a cohort going through to learn from each other. And how has that group functioned during COVID? Have you guys just been meeting and talking through Zoom and, and things like that? Or has it kind of taken kind of a backseat? Because I know tech transfer offices during this pandemic have been super busy. Well, I will say, and all hats off to Anna and I, she just shared an interim report with me this morning. Um, they, this has been actively going since September. Um, it is all obviously remote, but what they've been doing is each, so a cohort was chosen and the cohort is individuals from different universities. And I think those include not just 10U, but others. So Bristol is in there, Carnegie Mellon, uh, Cornell, Edim uh, Edinburgh, Imperial, Johns Hopkins, um, uh, and a few others. So we've expanded it in order to make sure that we are uh, a little more inclusive and diversity, equity, inclusion is a big theme in here. But what they've been doing, and sorry to answer your question, is they have been gathering remotely, but each office, each individual takes responsibility for a particular topic that they present to their colleagues. And so as examples, um, they have journey mapping with customers for marketing, diversity and inclusion and commercialization, business development, technology marketing, some leadership activities they've done, helping students manage IP and accelerators for drug discovery. That's all been done in the time from September through now. It's a and lot. more to come. And it, it is a lot. And this is the value of, I think, getting people together who otherwise would probably bump into each other at an autumn or an LES conference. But but say no more about it and move on. I, I am hoping, you know, one of the visions is that people really connect to the cohort they're with and that becomes their network. And we know networks create greater diversity, inclusion and uh, opportunities for engagement and um, getting a sight on what you might be able to do in the future. Now, Leslie, you you told us a little bit about your team. It was 55 individuals. And I wanted to know if you wanted to share a little bit more about how exactly your office is structured and how it how it's broken down. Yeah, I could do that. Um, so a fairly it's a fairly typical group. And I will say and, and I, I didn't really emphasize is we stick to kind of pure tech transfer. Many other tech transfer offices have become business development teams. They've become um, proof of concept centers or incubators or starting accelerators. 
because of the complexity and the volume, we are stuck to the knitting, as a friend of mine used to say. And so our office reflects that. We have a senior management team, uh, which is effectively the heads of each of the groups in the office. Um, we have uh, a group of technology licensing officers, uh, licensing associates, uh, senior license, uh, licensing associates and associate officers. And that group in total is about 25, so nearly half of the office. We have a financial operations team, patent administration group, uh, federal compliance and operations group. Um, and, that, and that group is also the group that brings in and uh, ensures the integrity of the invention disclosures and the entry of the data and the like. And they also do things like facilities management and HR falls within that group, a, a small communications marketing group. Um, we have IT support, obviously, and then run run through the marketing communications uh, manager. We have a group of interns. Wow. That's, yeah, it's quite, quite a group. But like you said, it, it seems like the very kind of typical type tech transfer office. So... Leslie, I'm curious. Um, you've you've had quite a career in tech transfer, and I'm wondering what you think is the key to success in tech transfer. Um, I have a simple answer for this, and some folks might poo-poo it, but that is um, faculty satisfaction, customer because service, customer service. If you don't have faculty who are happy with you, um, and and sometimes they don't like the answer you give them, but then you don't get the feet at the door. You don't get people knocking uh, on the window or whatever they do these days. And so that really is a, a telling uh, indication of how well your tech transfer offices are doing. It's really hard, I think, just to use these metrics that everyone throws out because many of them we do not control. You know, how many patents you get issued, yes, is a function of the number that you disclose, but that, that you put into the patent office. But the number you, you file on may be contingent on the amount of funding you've got. We all know that's really difficult for some tech transfer offices. So keeping the faculty engaged and wanting to work with you, for me, is key to, to at least starting that journey to having a successful tech transfer office. Well, I also wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you about external or corporate partners. And I'm sure at MIT, you you have a number of them. So I was wondering if maybe you could share some examples of some relationships that you have with external or corporate partners. Yeah, MIT is unique in many ways. And uh, its corporate engagement is another, another piece of that. Um, so I think about 20 to 25% of the research expenditures that come into MIT are from corporate engagement. And I'd say on average, others maybe have 9%. I know it's been growing in recent years because of the competitive nature of, of federal funding. But uh, MIT really is, and I think in the first couple of years I was here, we were doing two or three huge engagements with corporations a year, whereas I'd see one every five to six years at, at Illinois. And that's no, not telling on Illinois' capacity. It's just where we're at. We're surrounded by, and I will say that the President Reif and the leadership at MIT are all about solving global problems, finding solutions. And we can only do that with engagement with corporations. So to get to your question, so we have many different models by which we engage. It can be the individual um, sponsored research agreement going into a lab. It can be large initiatives, consortia, member agreements that are bringing multiple parties together. Some examples are, and, and one that's been around forever, is MITE, which is the MIT um, Energy Initiative. 
which really began thinking about clean energy and all of the energy problems long before other people were engaging in that way. We had the Quest for Intelligence, which started, and these are this is these are member programs, which started maybe four years ago, which is all about AI and engagement. Recently, we've had the Climate and Sustainability Consortium startup just two years ago, I think. Um, and so all of these are really targeting engagement from other leaders, corporate leaders that can help our faculty, our students, and our other partners think differently. It also helps that having them around or engaged means that there's opportunities for licensing or just at least getting eyes on the technology that we have to give feedback on it. And of course, we've got, I can't say, I can't um, not talk about uh, the industry liaison program and, and the startup exchange that has been around for many years. It has 216 members. I think 70% of them are involved in startup exchange. And what that is, is a group, not just of MIT licensed IP startup companies, but anybody who was MIT affiliated, a faculty member, an alumni, and they're brought in and can participate in the startup exchange. And then they engage with ILP members as an opportunity for strategic engagement or investment or supply chain issues or feedback on, you know, whether or not they've got the right route to uh, the market. And so that there's some nice symbiotic relationships uh, uh, going on there as well. Well, I would imagine, given the president of MIT's focus on global problems, then you must get a lot of engagement from philanthropic and the government as well. Yeah, and uh, I didn't mention, but when uh, we were talking about OSAT, I didn't say that actually the group isn't just focusing on industry-sponsored research agreements. We are, whatever comes across our path, and if we can add value to that, we will. And often now we see that foundations have more of column more complex terms, uh, often revenue sharing or other IP terms that we have to parse and make sure that we can comply with. And so, yes, uh, we get involved uh, with those as well. And I think, you know, we are seeing and I understand people are looking for an ROI on these things. They're not going to commercialize themselves. And that takes care. And again, layer all of that sort of stuff onto what I talked about with regard to multiple engagements and appointments with multiple parties and um, it makes tech transfer is harder to do than some people think. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's uh, definitely not an easy job um, at all. That's for sure. Um, and I wanted to ask you about your success stories. Um, do you want to share for us maybe some of um, MIT's successful technologies and startups? Yeah, certainly. And, and, and almost to the point of, 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 of not being able to talk about them because yeah, there's so, so many. many. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do want and I think we're probably one of the few tech transfer offices where you can walk into our office and you, you can come in now if you want to visit um, where we actually have an Amy sitting in one of our. Oh, display really? And, and it's pretty cool. I uh, could imagine. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, we're, we're pretty happy about that, though. I wasn't around. I can't take any credit for it. But it was for the contributions of MIT and its inventors and the TLO uh, to digital TV, because one of the biggest revenue generating uh, uh, licenses or multiple licenses was uh, from one of our faculty members who contributed to some of the components of what, what became the digital television market. And uh, it, the 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 backstory to that is, you know, the disclosures came 
in the early 90s. And it wasn't really until 2000 when things started to happen, which again speaks to the need for uh, funding to keep things going. And uh, this is not a, 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 you know, a, a one-year uh, technology ROI. This is uh, investment for the long term. Other technologies, other companies, um, a lot of battery technologies. A123 has its roots in it at MIT. Akamai has its roots at MIT. E-Ink, so the Kindles, the, all of that uh, came out of, I think, Lincoln Labs. Um, Editas is one of the gene editing uh, technologies and the Broad Institute actually licenses uh, IP on our behalf along with Harvard in the gene editing uh, sphere. Frequency Therapeutics is a great startup company um, that is dealing with uh, regeneration of hair follicles, hair cells in your ear uh, to overcome deafness. Uh, Cambridge Mobile Telematics is in the insurance area. Taris Biomedical recently got bought by J&J uh, and is in the cancer area. Desktop Metal is in 3D printing. Liquid Glide, which is one of my favorites, has a coating that can be used for multiple things, but the most favorite one of mine is the fact that it actually could help your um, toothpaste come out of the toothpaste bottle Oh, easier. so it doesn't and get stuck in there? I it hate doesn't that. get stuck. Ugh, and actually, so it is on sale in the United Kingdom, and I have some because my sister sent me some. Uh, so that I can just watch it go down the bottle. Um, but it has multiple other cool. uses beyond consumer uh, uh, satisfaction from that perspective, including reducing packaging and the like. Al Nylon Pharma came out of MIT, Vitricity, which is in the um, battery uh, EV space. Um, it, it, you know, it is really quite remarkable. And I, again, I sometimes I'm struck dumb when somebody goes, what's your favorite? And I'm going, I have too many to think about. But I want to give some. I want to give some stats, if I may, because I think Absolutely. this is also indicative of the 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 strength of the ecosystem and of the technology coming out. So over the last fifty years, no, sorry, over the last twenty years, there have been five hundred and thirty-one startup companies oh, launched from MIT, wow. and this is just MIT licensed IP. You could layer onto that another thousand that were student-owned or alumni or whatever. 150 of those are no longer operational, just point blank, didn't make it, not surprising. 121 are operational but have no active agreements. So they had the IP and then it terminated or ended and they moved on. That's absolutely fine too. But 259, 48% are still operational with an active agreement. I think that's pretty remarkable. That's amazing. That's an incredible statistic. Given the fact statistic. that people often say one in 10 yeah. or two. 10. Um, and I, I think it speaks to, one, the strength of the technology. It speaks to the the um, the smarts of the people in the companies and the ecosystem around us that really probably gave them a, a great head start on many others and other areas of the country. And I, I, I feel for that. I came from Illinois where everything was built and the tremendous work that went in by folks at the research park and the incubator and to actually build that ecosystem. And, and we're very lucky to have um, what we have here at MIT and in the Boston area. Well, there's obviously a lot of great success going on there um, at MIT, like you just said, but what about challenges? What would you say two of your office's biggest challenges are? Recruitment. Probably recruitment retention is you can kind of say, I mean, and I and I say that as much as we want to give our folks the, the, as much experience as possible, 
there's also a cap to how much we can give. And often our folks are prime ripe for the picking, shall we say, like a piece of fruit, um, and go on to other, do other great things that other tech transfer offices are moved completely. We have people who moved on to go to law school, to go to law firms, etc. So recruitment and retention is uh, one of those uh, things. And and I think just managing the volume. I mean, I had I have to shout out to my my staff, they're not my staff, but the team, our teams, every day. It is hard. And if there was a way to expand the hours in the day or find ways to simplify the work, which is part of what we're doing with the Shirley Transformation Project, then I would wish that on everyone. Um, but it, it is just a, a lot of work. But we are in it, in the ecosystem we're in. So I, I guess I can't complain too much about it. So, Leslie, I wanted to switch gears and ask you about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's a very important topic that's being discussed in tech transfer offices all around the world. Um, I wanted to ask you what the TLO and uh, I'm sure MIT are doing to help encourage and assist women and other traditionally underrepresented inventors and entrepreneurs. Yeah, absolutely. So let me start just by talking at the high level with what MIT has been doing and for obvious reasons that I won't go into. Uh, a number of years ago, the focus on DEI was 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 a hot topic and still is now. And I think in July 2020, President Reif announced the need for a strategic action plan on DEI and they are working hard and have appointed, I think, eight assistant uh, deans of uh, DEI to different departments uh, really addressing systemic racial social injustice not only in our community but um, you know in the world and thinking about how do we do business better and how do we treat each other with more respect and humility and so it's made a commitment MIT has made a commitment to address these issues um, uh, going forward building networks uh, you know they're really focusing I think on a number of different things with regard to um, uh, different resources, engagement, and education. Um, and so what the TLO has been doing a couple of different things. And I again, I have to give uh, a testament to the, the folks in our office who themselves created a DEI committee. And this was really ground up um, and started this a couple of years ago and basically to build a more equitable, inclusive place to work. So we have to look at this in a number of different ways. One is the the environment in which we're working and then looking at the tech transfer side of it and how we are helping uh, innovators, women underrepresented minority groups in terms of their engagement. So I'm kind of separating those two at the moment. So the DEI committee at at TLO has been working hard to engage our staff, bringing educational opportunities to them, We've done some anti-racism, I'll say training. Our, our, our trainer said, it's not training. You don't train people to not do this. These are conversations. These are awareness raising. This is about un- understanding your biases. Um, and those are difficult conversations to have, but we are fully engaged and uh, I support these wholeheartedly. Secondly and separately, um, but relatedly, um, out of the work of a number of different people at MIT, uh, initially called the Boston biotech women's group, I think, um, something now that's called Future Founders Initiative. We've been participating as a source of data to basically try and, and work out how we get greater engagement by underrepresented uh, groups, including women. 
And and again, if I can throw some numbers out, uh, the national average of uh, female inventors in patent filings is about 21%. At MIT, it's about 35 So it's not too shabby, but it's not good enough. Um, our, of our faculty, um, we have 25% female faculty uh, against, you know, obviously the balance of 75% faculty, which obviously means that you're immediately in, a, you have fewer people engaging to begin with uh, in, in, in these groups. So one of my colleagues, uh, Alexandra D'Alessandro, has worked really hard to be thinking about what we TLO can do to help lower barriers to engagement and actually look at the practices that we have in terms of how we might not be engaging as well with female inventors or underrepresented groups. And she did this really nice um, piece of work sort of saying, you know, to begin with, there's research, there's invention disclosures, there's patent filings, there's issued patents, there's licenses, and then there's royalties. How does all of this impact or what are the data related to that with regard to gender groups and the like. Um, and we're going to begin to do some systematic analysis to, to try and work out, is it something we're doing that is not helping in getting inventors engaged with us? Is it something we're doing and not encouraging female and underrepresented groups to think about startup companies? And I don't think this is a singular TLO issue. But we are absolutely part of the conversation and need to be thinking um, a little more proactively about what it is in the way that we talk and the things that we do. And if I can give some examples of the work done by the Future Founders Initiative, they found that women who found first fewer females found companies. And the opportunities that are missed by having that is something like, I don't know, of 40 companies, 10 are founded by women. So why, why is it not more than that? Um, but the conversations that these females have when they're trying to raise funds is, is that they get asked different questions. They don't get asked about the business. They get asked about the, you know, what is the chances of failure here? They get asked different things in relation to what male founders get asked, or they're asked to take along male colleagues because they're told that VCs don't typically fund women, or they're asked to take along male students because they want some sort of male representation. And so, again, I don't have answers, but it is clear from the data that we are missing opportunities. And these are not, this is not, as I once saw quoted someplace, this is not about fairness. This is about economics. This is about advancing science with the entirety of the skill set that we have in this world. And it is a missed opportunity. So we are hoping because it's not a pipeline problem. It's not because people, women are too busy. It's not because people don't lack interest or they lack interest. It's effectively because we have got inbuilt biases that we need to overcome. And that includes people in TLOs and in other communities that are in, in, in you know, enhancing or trying to enhance uh, the entrepreneurial community. Do you think you'll publish that data or share that that data once you've got it all collected? Because um, I could see that where that'd be really helpful for a lot of uh, TTO offices. Yes, I, I hope we will. I mean, this is part, a small part of a very big 
program, and some of that has already been published. There's a science uh, article that went out uh, with some of this data. This particular piece, which you know is basically disparities in the tech transfer pro process, really begins to hone in on and will become perhaps a little uncomfortable when we get to the, well, how do we conduct ourselves when we're talking to different groups that are not male, are not white? Um, and, and as I've said, even with our conversations in the office on DEI issues generally, we need to step out of our comfort zone and accept what, you know, what we discover. And if it's that is these, you know, biases that we are unaware of uh, and need to become more aware of and know how to address them, uh, then so be it. Well, it'll be interesting to see what 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 your data ultimately shows. So we'll we'll definitely have to stay tuned for that. Um, switching gears again, Leslie, I want to ask you what organizations that you're involved in. Um, I sounds like you're definitely involved in Autumn and perhaps LES as well. So I'm curious uh, if you could tell us what organizations those are and what value you think they add. So I was a former. Um, member of the board of uh, directors of COP, so get that out there. Um, I do participate in autumn uh, when it's in person. Uh, I haven't yet <laughs> participated because I don't think they're back in person until next year. Um, I was a member of the board of directors of LES. And um, I think that's probably, I mean, I use a lot. At the moment, everybody is using online digital forums, and those are are great and very handy um, and a great way to get in touch with people. But I will confess there's a time when I kind of go, I am just too busy to actively engage with these beyond what I have done in the past. And I hope there will come a time when I can both share and get shared with uh, other people's uh, uh, um, experiences so that I can be a more active and proactive member of those communities. Yeah, I think everybody's got everything crossed that we'll be meeting up in New Orleans in February. That's, you know, kind of knock on wood type of thing. We'll have to see. Right. Absolutely. So you mentioned certified licensing professional, and, and that actually leads me to my next question on credentialing um, and your views on it, whether it's CLP or the registered technology transfer professional designation. I was curious if what your view is on that and if you think it makes a difference. Well, I think depending on where you are, are in your career, um, both of those credentials or certificates, as it, as it is in, in the case of the CLP, are enormously helpful to show other people what your capabilities are. And even in the process of going through something like CLP, you will learn a lot. Uh, RTTP, I think, is more um, about your experience and, and what I don't think it's a certificate program. But it just it demonstrates to, to people when you're looking for your next job that you have experience. And I think that is always good to have something that you can hang your hat on and say, I was awarded this. I studied for this. I set an exam for this or I've had this much experience. And so if and again, at times it's a, a funding issue if you have to pay money. And if you're self-funded, that can be difficult at times. So we always have to take that into consideration. Somebody without one of those credentials doesn't mean to say they're not just as good as, but you have to be cognizant if somebody's actually taken the time and spent the money to do that. You have to give them kudos for that, too. Well, Leslie, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests if you could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for your office, what would that be? <laughs> uh, 
So one would be that I want, I thought about this, uh, I would want surely implemented tomorrow. So <laughs> I bet our you do. <laughs> <laughs> that our database is done and dusted, it works, and we've transferred all of the data and it's and we're and we're using yeah, it. That, that would be wish number one. And I'm pretty you'd, sure you'd that probably stop with that one if, if you could get <laughs> if you could actually get it, you'd probably be like, I'd take that one and be done. Right. Um, yes, I would. Um my second one would be that all of my vacancies are filled immediately as soon as they're posted. If that was, you know, that would be like magic because the transfer of stuff from one person to another while you're waiting for another person to come in is something horrendous and nobody wants to witness. Um, and I don't really have a third, you know, good health and well-being and that we get out of this pandemic. I, I hear you on that one. I, I I definitely second you on that one. Let's hope it's soon here. So, well, Leslie, I really can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. This has been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed talking with you. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Uh, you can email me uh, at lesliemn at mit.edu. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Leslie. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for tech transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.